going to uh, read now from the New Testament Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, uh, the first five verses. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Repent or perish. That's Jesus' message when some people raised with him the issue of an atrocity committed by the Roman governor Pilate against some Galilean pilgrims who'd gone to the temple to offer sacrifice, maybe at one of the Passover feasts. For whatever reason, Pilate had them killed and ordered that their blood should be mixed with the blood of the animals they were sacrificing. That's an abominable action because blood was sacred. And once the blood of the victims is mingled with the blood of the animals, you can't separate the two out again. So a human is muddled up with animal in a way that was deeply degrading to the humanity of those who have been killed and defiling to the temple as well. It was a man-made tragedy. The second incident to which Jesus refers looks like an accident that might have been caused by shoddy building work. A tower collapses, killing 18 people in the process. Why does God allow such things to happen? There were those who interpreted these tragic deaths as signs that those who perished in this way were somehow being punished for something they'd done. These weren't innocent victims. The manner of their death was an indication of the gravity of their sin, which was not apparent to anybody but God. They must have done something to deserve the fate that had befallen them. This was God enforcing the law of karma. You get what you deserve in life. There's no such thing as innocent suffering. Jesus does not endorse that point of view. Don't think, he says, that people who met their deaths in this way were more wicked or more sinful or deserved this fate more than anybody else did. Not at all. What he goes on to say is fundamentally disconcerting. Rather than talking about innocent victims, as we might do, he goes on to say, and you better watch out, because you deserve the same fate yourselves. You are as guilty as they were. Unless you repent, you're going to end up perishing the same way. That seems extremely harsh and condemnatory. What are we to make of his words? There are three different ways which you can take them. One is to focus on the reality, actually, that none of us is without sin. And because of that, we do all need to repent before God. That's a fundamental truth about the human race. When our lives are exposed to the bright light of God's holiness, we all fall short. There is not one of us who doesn't need to repent of who we are and what we do. And if you think otherwise, you're just deluding yourself, actually. It's a blinkered reluctance to see your life as God sees it, in all its squalor. That interpretation of Jesus' words might put some of us on the defensive. We might say, yes, I I believe that, that everybody's sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but does everybody really deserve a fate like that? Might seem very uncharacteristic of Jesus to have such a negative assessment of human nature, and it portrays God as a vengeful deity who sees us all as ripe for judgment and sending to hell. 
Maybe Jesus does say this as a way of shocking us into the depths of the depravity of the human condition. After all, if sin were not so terrible, he would not have had to go to the cross to deal with it. So let's allow his words to penetrate our hearts and to scour out any sense of self-righteousness from our souls. We do need to repent before our maker. We do need to make sort matters out with our judge because if we don't do so, Jesus leaves us in no doubt about our fate. Then you can look at the Gospels and see that Jesus spoke on more than one occasion about the future destruction of Jerusalem. You better sort your lives out because you know what's coming, he says. In the years to come, Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies. Distress would come upon the land and anger upon the nation. They would fall by the sword. They'd be taken away as prisoners of war. Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. It's a picture of divine judgment against sin. Like fire coming from heaven and consuming Sodom and Gomorrah. Or the flood overwhelming the world in the days of Noah. Or a master coming home and cutting his rebellious servants in pieces. Jesus doesn't mince his words, actually, when he talks about the severity of God's judgment. And in this case, we need to hear his words as a call to get our house in order. It's no good looking at other people and speculating about what they might have done to deserve such a fate. What counts is how we live our own lives. It's not about them, it's about me. And if life is treating me well, that's no reason for complacency. Because we need to use the good times to get our lives on the right track. Because you don't want to be caught short on the day of reckoning. Looking at the way in which those people lost their lives when Pilate had them killed and when the tower fed on them, Jesus warns, you better watch out because the same fate can happen to you unless you sort your life out with God. Stop worrying about them. Give some serious thought about what's going to happen to you unless you change your ways. Does Jesus have any specific sin in mind when he calls his listeners to repent? Possibly not, but let's not forget the context in which he said these words. Those who were talking to Jesus about Pilate's victims were clearly intimating that in some way, well, they they got what they deserved. We know that because Jesus says, look, don't think that they were worse sinners than anybody else. It's a very dangerous attitude to have, that one. Well, you know, people must have done something to deserve it because it rationalises away injustice. Faced with man-made or natural disasters, we can tell ourselves that in some way, well... It's okay because they must have done something to bring it upon themselves. And we think as well, well, as long as my life's all right, I'm happy with the world just the way it is actually, which is an extraordinarily self-centered attitude. But it's an easy one to adopt because it enables us to hold the problems that we see in the world at arm's length. All it takes is a bit of moral short-sightedness on my part. There are problems out there, but they must have done something to deserve it. And so long as I'm okay, that's the only thing that matters. In his book, Nice and Nasty, Steve Steve Turner wrote a poem called They Had It Coming. The Southeast Asians, well, they were made to cry. Look at their eyes, all narrowed up and ready to bawl. Black Africans, obesity wouldn't suit them. There's a grace about their slenderness. And their children would be naked without a covering of flies. Indians, perfect for begging in ragged clothes and falling dead on the streets without too much sensation. There are so many of them that death is no longer a problem. Middle Easterners, South Americans, they were made to look anguished. Their mothers crying to God, the children just crying. Earthquakes provide a good opportunity for this. White Westerners, they were made to laugh. To drive in fast cars with beautiful friends. They were made to drink and spend money. Don't disturb the balance of nature. That's the attitude that Jesus goes for in this little episode. 
The attitude that looks at the misfortune of others and thinks, well, that's them. As long as I'm all right. That's the thing that matters. They must have had it coming in some way. And he comes down so hard on the people he's talking to because if instead of being exercised about the injustice that was taking place, they shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's just the way it is. And Jesus says, that won't do, actually. It's not good enough. And if you think that way, you're not good enough either. Hence the call to repent. What are the issues we should be getting uptight about? Many of you will have heard about Campus Crusade for Christ, Christian Mission Agency based in America, founded in the 50s. It's now called CRU. They've identified 10 injustices in our current world. Number one is poverty. The World Bank talks about those living in poverty and those barely just above the poverty line being most at risk from climate change. The fewest resources to adapt or recover quickly from shocks. They live on the most vulnerable land because it's cheapest. And the extreme damage weather can do to their homes and businesses can tip them into extreme poverty. The herder who loses one or two cows to famine amidst a drought may feel his little choice but to sell the other ones at very low prices, the only prices he can get to keep his family fed. So the family weather the short-term crisis, but they've lost the productive economic assets they relied on, the assets that paid for the children to go to school, that were beginning to lift them out of poverty. The children lose the advantage of education, the herder loses his economic base, and they come trapped in poverty. Climate change affects the poorest people worst. Starvation. Almost one in every 15 children in developing countries dies from hunger. The worst drought in 60 years has seen successive crop failures in Ethiopia. 10 million Ethiopians are in critical need of food aid. In South Sudan, 3 million people face a hunger crisis because of a man-made disaster. The headline in the Los Angeles Times is people are starving in East Africa again as the world looks away. Jesus calls us to repentance. There's gender inequality. The statistics speak for themselves. Women with full-time jobs earn 77% as much as men. 62 million girls in the world denied an education. Every year, 15 million girls aged under 18 are married with little or no say in the matter. 36% of girls in Niger are married by the age of 15, so families have one less mouth to feed. Every year in India and Pakistan, there are a thousand honour killings. 30% of women suffer from some kind of physical or sexual violence from their partner. Female genital mutilation affects 125 million girls and women today. Four-fifths of the victims of human trafficking are girls. Gentlemen, this is a problem of our making. This week the news said that the elderly are poorly served in this country by the NHS. Help is often not available when they fall ill. They end up having to go to accidents and emergency. Once admitted to hospital, they face a lengthy stay and suffer reduced independence as a result. There is a real danger as time goes by that the elderly will become to be seen as an unwelcome burden on society. Societies are judged by how they treat their older people. How does ours fare on that criterion? Widows. In India, widows are isolated, ignored and treated as inferior. They are subjected to harsh treatment and poverty. They have to spend their days, many of them, at temples, begging so that they can just survive from hand to mouth. Then there are orphans in Sierra Leone. Thousands of children orphaned by the Ebola virus face stigma, hunger, trauma, at the risk of being marginalised and abused. The average age of an Ebola orphan in Sierra Leone is nine years old. There's racism. 
In 2014, one in three people in Britain admitted to having various degrees of prejudice against people of other nationalities. Levels of prejudice were higher amongst those aged over 55 and amongst those with lower levels of education. Last year, police recorded nearly 43,000 racially motivated hate crimes in England and Wales, 15% up on the previous year. That's not healthy for our society. It's not good in God's sight. There's abuse in all its forms, emotional abuse, name-calling, criticising, withholding affection, threatening, public humiliation, financial abuse, being denied access to money, having to do favours for money, not having any say in how money is spent, having to beg for money, physical abuse, hitting, smacking, kicking, biting, burning, pushing, grabbing, restraining, strangulation, sexual abuse, rape, unforced or unwanted sexual acts, criticising sexual performance, forcing unprotected sex. Neglect. The list goes on and on. These types of abuse all go on behind closed doors, but they need to be named as being just plain wrong. Sex trafficking. Every year an estimated 800,000 women and children are tricked and trafficked into a life of beatings, rape and torture. Girls from rural areas are especially vulnerable because of high unemployment, widespread domestic violence and alcoholism. Prosecutions for trafficking are up in the UK. 183 between April and December last year, up on the figure for all of 2014. There are more people to traffic actually these days for being labourers or domestic workers than for sexual exploitation. But it is modern day slavery. Then there's the war and the trauma of war, reflected in the growing refugee crisis. Since the war started in Syria, over a third of a million people have been killed, including 12,000 children. Six million have left their homes and are still living in Syria. Four and a half million have fled abroad. Half of all refugees from that country are said to be children. We need to pray for the fragile ceasefire that will hold. That aid does get to people trapped in besieged areas. That it holds until the 7th of March when peace talks are due to start. All of these things are our problem. All of them. Martin Luther King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny. What affects one directly affects all indirectly. Global injustice is a manifestation of the power of sin which enslaves and destroys the lives of countless people. And we can't avoid being entangled in that mess because we live in a world where our lifestyle choices have a huge impact on countless other people who are denied the very choices that we take for granted. Sin is closing our eyes to that reality. One of the speakers at the 2013 World Council of Churches Congress asked, am I a Christian? How could I be in a world where Christians own multinational corporations that have commodified water, air and land? Am I a Christian? How could I be in a world where Christians increasingly justify the exclusions, bullying, torture, imprisonment, enslavement, lynching and murder of people whose language is too foreign, whose knowledge is too experiential, whose skin is too dark, whose region is too poor, whose HIV status is too positive, whose sexuality is too queer, and whose gender is too female. Jesus calls us to repentance of our vested interest in the status quo, which works so much to our advantage by putting a distance between ourselves and the victims of unjust suffering when we see it as their problem. It's ours. 
And instead of distancing ourselves from the issues that we see, Jesus calls us to identify with the victims of injustice and with their issues. They don't deserve it. But in a thousand unavoidable ways, we contribute to their plight. And Jesus calls us to recognise that and repent of it. And when we wonder, from the comfort of our armchairs, why does God allow so much unjust suffering in the world, his first answer always is, what are you doing about it?